This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, voters head to the polls again this weekend. We'll look at what's at stake. The race for Orleans Parish Sheriff has heated up with the size of the jail facility, a key issue between the candidates. And schools are given simulated grades by the Louisiana Department of Education, and they're not great. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hey, Michael. Good morning. Criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel's here. Hey, Nick. Morning, Kayla. And education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. Michael, first up, New Orleans voters head to the polls this weekend to vote in several local elections, including renewing two existing property taxes dedicated to the public library and affordable housing. Both expire at the end of the year. Supporters of the tax renewals say the stakes are high. So what's on the ballot this weekend? Yeah, so we're voting for a few things this weekend. Um, Probably the most high profile race is for sheriff. Um, Nick is going to tell you about that in a second. So I'll kind of just skip over that one. But, um, you know, we're also looking at um, four uh, district council seats. So um, depending on where you live in the city, um, you know, you'll be voting in different elections here. But uh, District B, District C, District D and District E. Uh, are all going to a runoff um, this weekend. And then there's we're also voting for the clerk of criminal district court. And then the last two um, items, like you said, are these two property tax renewals. So let me start by saying that both of these are renewals for existing property taxes that people have been paying for uh, you know decades now. Um, so if, if these renewals pass, you will not see the tax rate change at all. If they fail, we're going to see a tax decrease. So that's kind of what's on the line. Um, And the first one is for the public library. The public library basically relies um, on two property taxes, each of which bring in about 10 or $11 million a year. Um, This is one of them that will expire at the end of the year if it's not renewed. It's pretty vital funding for the library. Um, Again, I think if uh, it's not renewed, the library would lose roughly 54% of its annual budget. Mm. Um, So, you know, uh, basically, you know, the library administration supporters of the library, they're saying if this doesn't pass, what we're looking at is is, uh, service reductions, um, fewer books, fewer resources, possible layoffs, possible branch closures, at least, you know, reducing hours of operation in some capacity. So proponents of, of the renewal say this is really, really vital, um, fund, you know, fundamental funding for the library system. The second property tax on the ballot, it's a bit smaller. Um, it raises about three or four million dollars a year uh, exclusively to be used on affordable housing initiatives and blight reduction. So, you know, this city has had an affordable housing crisis for a, a long, long um, A lot of those forces, according to housing advocates, were exacerbated by the coronavirus pandemic, um, by Hurricane Ida. Um, and proponents of this renewal say it's pretty vital funding that uh, losing funding kind of in the fight against, you know, the in in affordability crisis, um, you know, is kind of unacceptable at this point. So th- those are kind of the broad, you know, stakes of those two elections. And Michael, I was looking at the ballot and like, just how far does that housing affordability millage go? Yeah, like like how much can it actually do? Yeah, how much impact would we actually see or how many people can it help? 
So, yeah, I mean, so the, the, the spending for this money isn't fully planned out. You know, basically the way it works is that all the money from this tax goes into the Neighborhood Housing Improvement Fund, um, which is a local, um, you know, fund that's dedicated to affordable housing and blight removal. You know, and it's historically been used for things like emergency rental assistance, for uh, assisting first-time uh, home buyers. Um, fixing up homes after hurricanes and incentivizing new housing development. There, there isn't a solid plan for where this three to four million dollars annually would go right now. I mean, we can assume based off of past spending that this would mean fewer people that got that emergency rental assistance and therefore, you know, had to leave their homes. It means, um, you know, fewer people getting that help to buy their first home and building that generational wealth. So, you know, you can draw the line. Um, however, there isn't a clear line item budget for this money right now. So we can't, you know, exactly point to the projects that would be, you know, left off. What I'll say is that, you know, it's pretty widely agreed that this money isn't enough to fix the problem of, of affordability in New Orleans. Um, you know, so it's not enough money to fix the entire problem, but housing advocates have been pretty clear um, that they see it as a vital pool of money um, for a few reasons. You know, a, a lot of, you know, the, the housing funds that New Orleans gets to use come, comes from the federal government. Um, but the challenges with federal funding um, tend to be that number one, um, they're very strict in how the money can be used. You have to be really careful about how you use federal funds or, you know, the government may ask for the money back. Um, and number two, it can be slow to react to problems. You know, anyone who's dealt with FEMA knows that sometimes these, you know, disaster programs, these, these emergency responses from the federal government can be slow. Um, and what the city and what housing advocates have said about the Neighborhood Housing Improvement Fund is that it kind of allows the city to react immediately to problems. Proponents will point specifically to early on in the pandemic, um, the city was able to use this fund to set up an emergency rental assistance program way before federal funding was made available for that. And, you know, so that again, city officials will say that the fund was able to help people stay in their homes when no federal funding was available. And it also allowed the city to leverage more federal and state dollars once they were made available because we'd already set up this baseline program and we're ready to accept the funds, these federal funds and start getting it out the door. Um, so, you know, I think part of the, the, the lack of clarity about exactly how this money would, is gonna be spent has to do with the city wanting to maintain some level of flexibility so that it can respond to things like pandemics and hurricanes, um, you know, when, again, federal funding might not be available. Okay. And as you said, these are not new taxes. These are both renewals. Is there widespread opposition at all? Is What are the chances they go through? No. So it's kind of a, anyone paying attention to the elections this year, um, you know, they're, they're kind of, um, there hasn't been a ton of attention on them. There hasn't been a ton of you know enthusiasm or excitement around these elections. I think with these two propositions, um, they certainly have support. Um, both have you know coalitions of you know community groups um, that are are backing them. Um, neither has seen a real organized opposition campaign. You know, I, I don't think I've actually even seen any public official a single public official come out themselves and oppose either. So um, there's not a ton of opposition. The, the housing um, the housing tax did see, um, you know, some criticism in a recent report um, from the Bureau of Governmental Research, um, a local government watchdog uh, think tank. In that report, um, BGR ended up 
endorsing the library tax, but uh, opposing the housing tax. Huh. Um, and you know what, what they said about the housing tax was basically that, that there wasn't a clear enough housing plan from the city um, to know exactly how this money would be spent. And basically they argued that while there is an affordable housing crisis that needs uh, programs to respond to it, and while the Neighborhood Housing Improvement Fund has been traditionally you know, used well to that end, um, they still didn't feel comfortable enough with the city's laid out plans to endorse it. Obviously that report has received pushback from housing advocates. Um, again, um, what you know, city officials have said is that you know, the lack of having a line item for each dollar in this fund is to maintain a level of flexibility so that you can respond, right? They say that that is one of the benefits of this fund, leaving some room to respond and not having all of this money earmarked for specific things. Hmm. Um, you know, the, the other argument, you know, I, I talked to Kashana Hill, who's the executive director of the Louisiana Fair Housing Action Center, and she pointed out that, you know, in the report itself, BGR says that because the affordability crisis in New Orleans is so large, there is really no chance that this money, that, that we're allocating more money to this issue than we'll need, right? You know, sometimes when you make a dedicated tax, the concern is that, oh, this is just gonna accumulate in the fund, we're not gonna get it out the door, and we're just gonna have millions of dollars sitting there doing nothing. Um, when it comes to affordable housing, it really, that risk isn't quite there. Right. You know, I mean, we're constantly looking for funding for this type of stuff. Um, you know, and, and it also, you know, the BGR report also was, you know, seemingly supportive of how the city has used the Neighborhood Housing Improvement Fund in recent years. Um, so, you know, I think that for Hill, you know, she was a little confused why BGR would say that the city has spent the money well, that this, you know, will not be more money than they need, um, but still say they're uncomfortable with the allocation. Um, so, you know, that that's the pushback. And, um I think the other big question mark in both the housing and the library um, elections is is low turnout. Um, it's been a low turnout election this year, and when that happens, you know that can lead to some unpredictable results. People are, you know, obviously still feeling the financial pains of the pandemic, of the hurricane. Um, how that will play into renewing property taxes, we'll see. I think of the two, um, the you know the housing is probably the, the more uncertain of the two. The library has generally gotten pretty widespread report, uh, support. You know they're feeling pretty confident this year, and they have a little bit more of an organized supporting campaign. So both are still unclear, and, and we'll see on Saturday. Okay. I was wondering why don't they do the the millages or the ballot initiatives the on primaries. I believe that the library had a choice um, to, to put it on either. And I think that I can't remember the exact reasoning why they chose December, but but that was a choice. That was a strategy by them. Um, I guess they figured, you know, I, I think that there there is probably thinking that in a lower turnout election, you know, that you're really dealing with your chronic voters, people who tend to vote in every single local election, who, you know, tend to read up on this stuff. And, um, you know, maybe in, in elections like that where, you know, you really are having your, your repeat voters come in, um, they feel more confident about a millage, people informing themselves on what it's going to do and what the purpose is and, and hoping people kind of understand that. So that could be one reason. Um, uh, it, it also just gave them more time to get their, you know, act together, to get their strategic plan together and to, you know, start up this campaign. So I think that probably played into it too. Okay. All right. Thanks, Michael. Yeah. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Hildman. 
My guests this week are government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel, and education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, I'm Charles Maldonado, editor at The Lens. Our mission is to educate, engage, and empower readers with information and analysis necessary for them to advocate for a more transparent and just governance that is accountable to the public. That means you can count on us for truth, fairness, and accuracy. But in order to do this work, we need to count on you. Please make a tax-deductible contribution to support our work at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. Okay, Nick, the size of the jail in New Orleans and the number of incarcerated people inside of it has declined dramatically over the last 15 years. During the campaign for re-election, Sheriff Marlon Gussman has taken credit for this reduction, but reform groups and former city officials say that Gussman has regularly pushed for a bigger jail during his time as sheriff, and the reductions happened despite him, not because of him. What is Gussman saying about his role in reducing the population at the jail? So Gussman's really been touting the reduction in jail size that that has occurred on his watch. Um, not only, you know, he's he's both he's arguing that he's both made the jail a safer place, but that he's really had a hand in, in reducing the jail population and decommissioning a lot of the old Orleans Parish prison buildings that were being used. A uh, new jail was opened in 2015 and and Gusman is really taking credit for the you know the size of that jail um and and the fact that it's a, a you know a much newer facility um advocates are are quite frustrated because there was a long fight over this jail that, that you know to some extent is continuing today um and they really feel like the size of the jail the size of the current jail um was was their doing um, and, and Gusman really, you know, was, was pushing for a much larger facility, which um, when you go back and look at, at what was happening back then in, you know, is true. Um, he, he was in many instances pushing for a much larger jail than, than advocates and, and the city at times wanted. So how is that? Lo- how does that look in the campaign? What are what are each side saying about the other? Well, Gusman and ads um, and, and, you know, in statements to the press and at forums has, you know, kind of said, look, like the jail population is is a fraction of what it was when I came in. You know, when when Gusman took over, there was the jail was was Orleans Parish Prison at the time. Um, now it's the Orleans Justice Center, but Orleans Parish Prison was kind of the sprawling compound of buildings um, that had been built up over several decades by, by Gusman's predecessor, Charles Foti. And Foti really you know, made an effort to grow the jail population and to, to have um, detainees and prisoners, you know, he would, he would send them out and do public works projects. And, and it was kind of this empire, uh, you know, several people, uh, 40 critics called it a fiefdom. Um, so he would get contracts with, with state and to, to house state and federal prisoners and and kind of encourage police to make more arrests and and really just grew the jail population you know to it was, it was the largest in, in the country um there's no no city with a similar size population uh, new orleans that had had nearly as many people locked up after hurricane katrina a number of the the buildings were damaged in, in new orleans parish prison prisoners and detainees were sent all over the state and so the 
the population of the jail ended up shrinking pretty dramatically, um, and a number of buildings were, were decommissioned. But it was still much larger jail than than almost anywhere else in the country. It was it was just there was still over three thousand people being detained, you know, regularly in the jail. And so so around two thousand ten, Sheriff Gusman was pushing forward with a plan to build a new jail, um, and it was actually a plan that that would have both built some new buildings <clears throat> um, and also renovated some some of the old damaged buildings. And it would have would have ended up being a jail that, that was about forty five hundred beds. That it would have actually been an increase in the, in the number of of, uh, of people who who could be held in the jail. And this got a lot of pushback from from advocates um, and from the city. And they kind of pulled the plug on the plan and and convened this working group. It was a criminal justice working group, and with with kind of the criminal justice actors in the city. And that's where a lot of this sort of debate went on about about the jail size and you know the jail size at that point was really a proxy for a lot of the criminal justice issues that that um and and reform issues that advocates wanted to see take place in the city you know bail reform uh reducing the number of low-level arrests so so this working group was kind of kind of this debate not only over the jail size but sort of a vision for for the future of criminal justice in the world okay and this is all happening with the backdrop of the not only the federal consent decree, but also the the lawsuit, which continues to move on through the courts where they're being forced to build the new facility and the sheriff and others are, sorry, the mayor and others are opposed to that. So how is that playing out in the election? So yeah, the the big, the, the consent decree sort of came down as, after Gusman got, got permission to build this, New jail, which they they put a a, a bed cap of fourteen hundred and thirty eight beds, um, and so the consent decree comes down, and around that time, attorneys for for the for the detainees in the jail said, went into the jail and said, "You're not building this correctly. This is is supposed to be able to hold all types of detainees, and you're building it with sixty bed pods." that that really is not good for accommodating you know all sorts of different different types of detainees and and gusman has pointed out that the an ordinance that that passed that allows him to to build this building excluded one type of detainees and that was those with acute mental illness right um some folks some people on the city council susan gidry is a, was the chair of the criminal justice committee said that she passed that because she felt that no one with severe acute mental illness should be in jail at all. Um, that she thought these people should be being treated in the hospital. Regardless, people with acute mental illness do end up in the jail quite frequently. Um, the city is not set up to to have kind of alternative options or secure medical facilities outside of the jail. So right now, the, the, the question is what how to accommodate those those individuals. The current jail does not have space for them. And so the debate is over over phase three, which we've we've talked about as an 89 bed, you know, special needs facility that would be built um, on an empty plot of land between Gusman's two current jail facilities. And you know, the what what I kind of tried to illustrate in the story is the history of this this debate is that Advocates really feel like Gusman has been dishonest in this in this debate uh, over jail size. That he sort of said, "Yeah, I, I, I want a smaller jail. Right. Um, I'm happy for this reduction." 
and then dumb things such as the you know the way he constructed his current jail to necessitate more more jail buildings and and ultimately a bigger jail you know he wants pushed for this phase three facility to be over 600 beds so there's there's kind of a consistent pattern where, where, where Gusman has has pushed for, for for large facilities and more facilities and has has received pushback and kind of you know scaled down his um, aspirations for, for for those buildings. His opponent, Susan Hudson, is is opposed to building a phase three at all, as is Mayor Latoya Cantrell's administration. They want to retrofit uh, the current jail to to accommodate these these detainees. Um, and that is, you know, sort of still being litigated even as the city moves forward with uh, construction of the building. Right. So he has his finger in the political winds, as they would say, and, and it has adjusted accordingly. Do you have any... Um sense of, of what will happen this weekend? No, I don't. I mean, I think that most most people, you know, Gusman has been sheriff for, for 17 years now, has um, never lost an election as sheriff. I don't. Um, I think I think that it would be a big uh, upset. upset if Susan Hudson would, was able to, to unseat him. You know, she has never held elected office in New Orleans. Her name recognition is not, not what Gusman says. So, We'll see. Um, you know, I think I think that there is there are a lot of enthusiastic supporters behind her, though, um, and I do think the sort of trend in in criminal justice matters in the in the city has really been trending more progressively. You know, we saw the uh, Jason Williams election as district attorney. So we'll see. There's there's a number of factors. Out there. Right. Okay. Thanks, Nick. Thank you, Kelly. Marta, in education, Louisiana Department of Education released simulated school performance scores last week, giving the public a look at annual academic achievement for the first time since 2019. In March of 2020, when COVID-19 cases started to appear in Louisiana, Governor John Bell Edwards shuttered schools statewide for the remainder of the year. State testing was canceled that spring as a result, and although it returned this year, the department received a federal waiver for accountability. The release came as a bit of a surprise, so they quietly released these scores, but department officials say they want schools to be able to utilize the data. So what what did the scores tell us? I think, you know, most broadly overall, what they told us was that the pandemic was really hard on kids. Um, we saw uh, overall drop in scores across the state. Majority of districts and schools um, would have seen a drop in their score. They are they are kind of using this language of, of simulated and you know would have had these grades been calculated so i guess they're kind of, you, the district or the the state wants to acknowledge that um you know they did say they weren't going to calculate these and then all of a sudden they did so so yeah they didn't even announce that they were doing it they just quietly did it yeah no it's very bizarre one administrator called me and said are you going to write about these and i said oh i saw they were going to talk about them on tuesday but they're already out. Like normally they do a press release and they tell you when these things are coming out. So they, they did do it very quietly. I think they're doing it for informational purposes for, for schools. And, but, you know, personally, I think these are always informational. Um, you know, I would argue that, so they release these scores and they, the scores are technically, they say C19 dash and then whatever score the school got. Um, and, you know, they have, they have years where if you're a new charter school or you take over a new charter school, they don't calculate a grade for you. 
and I would argue that they, they should do the same thing with those schools. If they, you know, if you want to put an asterisk there, that's fine. Yeah. Not even a, not even a, <laughs> not even a simulated score for the new ones. Yeah, it's, it's still helpful. It's still, you know, informs people about how the school is doing. So uh, maybe if they're doing it here, they're going to do that in the future. <laughs> right. Before we get into the, um, the, the grades specifically, you mentioned at the outset that this, we knew that the pandemic was hard on everybody. Um, do you think that the the severity of these grades is a bit of a surprise? Yes and no. I think like overall across the state, we just saw generally that, you know, almost everyone had a drop or some type of a drop. And I, I think that's not a surprise. I think in the city, the grades are pretty rough. Hmm. <laughs> but, you know, what officials did say that high poverty, high minority um, enrollment schools are the ones that, that saw this um, were hit the hardest, essentially. So right. it's not a surprise in that manner. Right. So let's talk about the, the schools in New Orleans and the A through F letter grades and what happened. Yeah. So with these simulated scores, um, basically a, a third of schools in New Orleans would have received an F, a third of schools would have received a D, um, and only a, a handful of schools, I think it's five and six, got A's and B's, I might have those backwards, but it, it, a very small number. Okay, any surprises in the distribution of those D's and F's? I think we just saw a lot of people slip. Um, I feel like slip is probably a good way to describe it. Um, just, you know, because um, like we said, like kids struggled last year. I talked to one educator or one CEO who said, you know, this is obviously not what we want for our kids, but you know, I hope teachers don't see this as a reflection on their work over the past year because I know that they were working. We also learned from officials that the longer schools were in virtual a virtual format, the more likely they were to see a drop in their score. So that's that's some pretty interesting data to take away. Mm-hmm. This has got to be so demoralizing to to the administrators and in particular the teachers. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's definitely a hard pill to swallow. But like the, this administrator I talked to said the data is still helpful to have. We we want to know how our kids are doing. We want to know where they're at. And even if it's, you know, a hard pill to swallow, it's something that we want to see. So how are the grades here calculated? Are they based on standardized testing? And how did the standardized testing, because I don't even remember how that happened, if that's the case, how did that happen in New Orleans during the pandemic? Yeah, so for, we remember the standardized testing was canceled in 2020. We did have it in 2021. Uh, We didn't know we were going to have scores calculated, or maybe some people did, but the public didn't. For elementary schools, the standardized test makes up the majority of a grade. Um, I think it used to be 95% of their school letter grade. Okay. It's now now dropped somewhat, and there are some added things. Um, I know you get get points for having a kind of a variety of... um, classes you offer. I can't remember exactly what it's called. It's like, if you offer, I think it's called opportunities points. If you offer extracurriculars and some, you know, different types of classes, you get some points for that. But still at the elementary level, it is majority uh, based on standardized testing. When you go to the high school level, it is a little more varied. It is based uh, partially on standardized testing. It is based partially on ACT scores. It is based partially on graduation rate. Um, so there is a little bit more of a different calculation there. And that's why, you know, officials said that, you know, these scores definitely hit elementary schools the hardest. And I think those calculations are part of the reason why, because we had 
um, you know, high schools had graduation waivers that they were operating off of. So they, they had a little bit more of a cushion. Right. Okay. And the students that m- were most likely affected by the low grades? High poverty, high, high minority schools were most likely to be affected. And then also any, any schools that spent a significant amount of time in virtual learning versus in-person learning, they, they saw big drops. So while that's really unfortunate, it, it at least in some way informs us, you know, the difference between virtual and in-person learning. And, and we can have some takeaways there. Is there a direct relationship between the grades and enrollment numbers? Um, at this point, I don't believe so. I mean, if you if you talk to the district right now, they would tell you that schools are more likely to be full and their F-rated schools have the most empty seats. So you are right in that sense. I don't know if there's direct correlation to these grades that just came out um, just because they're, like they said, simulated, but just, just because they, you know, just came out. So it's not like you can make a choice based on these for this year, but right. you can for next year. But for next year. Do you expect any kind of plan as a result of this? Any sort of coordinated effort from the Orleans Parish School Board? Well, they have already talked about their big plan is to do this, what they're calling, quote, right-sizing um, plan, where it, it, it sounds like they could end up closing some schools or some charters could consolidate. So I wouldn't be surprised if grades factored into that. I don't know if these simulated grades will directly factor into that, but you know these these simulated grades have you know largely I think probably reflect 2019 grades as well, if not you know slipping a couple points or 10, 12, 15 in some cases. So so I think it will reflect 2019 grades as well. Okay. All right. Thanks, Marta. Thank you. Okay, you guys, great work this week. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Carolyn. Thanks, Sheila. Nice to see you. Talk to y'all later. Okay, bye. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guest this week, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle, and education reporter Marta Jusen. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.